Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It's our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. We're going to talk everything from parenting, the desire to have children, and the abortion front. Why are so many American children now on medication from ADHD, bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression? Well, we'll be joined in just a moment by Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a family physician as well as a PhD psychologist. We'll also discuss why American kids are so much heavier than they were a generation ago. All of it comes in many ways back to our marriage hour topic of parenting. I'm going to talk about the rush of men today to have vasectomies in light of the response to Roe versus Wade. Interesting response. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I'll also discuss how singer Billie Eilish has said she would rather die than not have children. That desire for children is ingrained on the hearts of many people, especially women, but many people don't think they can say that today. And we'll talk about the significance of this young 20-year-old musician saying so. Okay, did you hear the news? Fans walked out of singer Halsey's concert in Arizona this past weekend when she went on a radical pro-abortion rant. People left in droves. So much so, Halsey herself noticed, as well as fans posting on social media complaining about as pro-lifers leaving, among other things. We'll t- discuss that and more on the abortion front coming up today on Trending. Joining me now is Dr. Leonard Sachs. Dr. Leonard Sachs is a family physician, as well as holding a PhD in psychology, especially focusing on the research that helps us, especially as parents, in helping our kids today. He's written a number of books that I highly recommend. Everything from his book on parenting that I have here with me, The Collapse of Parenting. We're going to talk about some of the themes from that book today. He's also written a book called Girls on the Edge, as well as a book about young boys today. Again, Dr. Leonard Sachs today on Trending. We're going to discuss with Dr. Sachs why many American children are highly medicated today, as well as the struggle with weight for children and not just being overweight, but outright being obese. Dr. Leonard Sachs, welcome back to Trending. Thanks for inviting me. Let's talk about this trend of medication today. Uh, It's interesting to me that in your book, The Collapse of Parenting, you draw a correlation between the crisis, really, of misbehaved children, uh, the lack of command and authority parents are having and a connection to the increase in the use of medication to treat children and seeming behavioral issues that you say aren't things that need to be medicated but that need to be treated with stronger parenting. Can you share with us a little bit more on this? 
Sure. So I'll share some examples from from my practice firsthand. So uh, a boy in fifth grade is defiant. He's disrespectful. He talks back. He has spit at a teacher. Uh, I've been a medical doctor for, gosh, 30, 36 years now. That's not terribly new. Okay. There's always been the occasional boy who is defiant, disrespectful, uh, really, really badly behaved kid. But I can tell you that 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, the teacher would have uh, said to the parent or the, the principal or the school counselor would have spoken to the parent and said, hey, your son is rude. He's defiant. He's disrespectful. Uh, uh, today, the same boy doing the same behaviors at school, defiant and disrespectful, it is much more likely in the United States that the teacher or the principal or the counselor is going to say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking your son may meet criteria for oppositional defiant disorder. Have you thought of having him evaluated? And uh, they take him to a professional. Now, what's the difference between saying to a parent, your son is rude, and saying to a parent, your son may meet criteria for oppositional defiant disorder? If you look up that criteria for oppositional defiant disorder, it amounts to being defiant and disrespectful and rude and talking back. So in a sense, these are two ways of saying the same thing, but they're not. They're really very different statements. If I say to a parent, your son is rude, then the burden is on the parent. Uh, the implied burden here is, hey, you got to step up and teach your son that you're never allowed to spit at a teacher, that there are certain standards of behavior that we expect your son to live up to. The burden is on the parent and on the boy. But if I say to a parent, your son may meet criteria for a psychiatric disorder, well, then uh, the reasonable next question is, would medication be appropriate? We don't blame people for having a psychiatric disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all a chemical right. imbalance. So if, if my son has a chemical imbalance, uh, he needs medication. I saw this very dramatically uh, when I visited a school in St. Louis, second grade classroom, the teacher was trying to bring the class to order. They'd just come in from recess. Most of the kids have sat down, but one boy is running around the room and will not sit down. He's running around the room making buzzing noises. And, and, and the teacher says, uh, Tyreek, I, I need you to sit still and be quiet. And he, he ignores her. And he, she says, Tyreek, you got to sit down or else. And he says, or else what? And she said, or else I will make you sit down. And oh. she grabbed him and forced him into a chair and he bit her on the wrist. And it was a deep bite, wow. drew blood. And he ran out into the hallway laughing. She called mom and she said, hey, I need to tell you, your son uh, bit me. And it was actually a, a deep bite. We're going to need to complete an incident report. Uh, but before she could even finish the sentence, mom said, well, he's got an IEP. He's got a 504. You know, you should be talking to the psychiatrist. Uh, he probably needs an adjustment in his medication. And he is on three different medications. Uh, that's the end result of what I've come to call the medicalization of mm. misbehavior. Mm -hmm. the, the excuses, misbehavior, too, from parents to not first think maybe well, my child is misbehaving. It's a, it's a cultural thing in the United States. It's become yes. very popular now 
to blame misbehavior on a chemical imbalance in the brain. And so the responsibility shifts away from the parents where it belongs to me, to the prescribing physician, to the medical psychological counseling complex where it should not belong. But the parents mm -hmm. step back and most American doctors are very happy to step in and prescribe in this context medications like Risperdal, Zyprexa, and Seroquel, which are actually tremendously effective in stopping the behavior. They mm -hmm. will zonk this kid very effectively and he will, he will, the, 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 the fine behavior will stop. Mm -hmm. These medications are, were developed for treatment of schizophrenia. These are antipsychotic medications. A kid in the United States is now 93 times more likely to be on Risperdal, Zyprexa, or Seroquel compared to a kid in Italy. In Italy, these medications are prescribed for schizophrenic kids, which are pretty unusual. In the United States, they're prescribed as a means of behavior control, and they have massively mm -hmm. scary mm -hmm. side effects, change metabolism, greatly increase right. the risk of, of obesity and diabetes, and those risks do not go away when you stop the medication. A a a immensely dangerous medications, but widely prescribed in this country, mm -hmm. uh, much more so than in any other country. I do believe uh, and, that and this, this is the end result. Yeah, mm -hmm. I do believe this increase in prescription of young children going through high school and then believe that they need to continue to be on these medications going into college is part of the reason we have failure to launch syndrome, especially among young boys today uh, due to this medication use. I can even think of a dear friend of mine who was told for years by teachers because, you know, he would goof off and didn't always like to listen and struggled yes, academically, but wasn't a stupid child. He was told by uh, teachers, you know, he needed to be on Adderall or Ritalin. Uh, they put him in a special ed class because parents didn't give him uh, these treatments. They pushed and pushed and pushed for him to be medicated. And, you know, eventually years later, you know, coming into college, he says, okay, well, I'll try this medication that I've been encouraged to try for all of these years. And it's just interesting to see the fallout that so many young men are having with this lack of confidence because it comes back to difficulty with regard to authority and like you said it's being blamed on a so-called medical issue when it's a behavioral issue that's not actually being addressed at the end of the day well you're raising a somewhat different topic that i address in my book boys adrift the five factors driving the growing epidemic of unmotivated boys and underachieving young men. And you mentioned Adderall, stimulant medications like Adderall, Vyvanse, a kid in the United States is 14 times more likely to be on Adderall, Vyvanse, and Concerta Metadate medication like that compared to a kid in the United Kingdom. In 1980, there was no difference between the United Kingdom and the United States in the prescribing of stimulant medications for ADHD. And the American kid is now, as I said, 14 times more likely. Mm -hmm. Again, this is because in this country, uh, doctors will say, well, let's try Adderall and see if it helps. Uh, and you know what? It does, it does help. Uh, so I'll tell you about another kid from my own practice. So the kid went to child adolescent psychiatrist, a high school kid, and wasn't doing, his grades had dropped. And, and the doctor said, well, let's try Adderall and see if it helps. And it did. Uh, and his grades and, and it went up and, and he's doing much better. The teachers were of really course. impressed, but mm -hmm. he's, he's getting, he's getting, uh, 
palpitations and weight loss and insomnia. And the parents mm -hmm. saw an article I'd written in the New York Times critical of these medications and the way they're prescribed. And so they brought him to see me for a second opinion. And I, I said to the boy, uh, do you have a video game console in your bedroom? He said, of course. Uh, so uh, were you playing last night? Oh, I first asked the parents, how much sleep does your son get? And they said, oh, he's in, he's in his bedroom, nine o'clock at night, the latest. We wake him at six a.m. the next morning. So he's getting nine hours, right? So I asked the boy if he has a video game console. Of course he does. So were you playing anything last night? Oh, yeah. What, what were you playing? Oh, Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto. So like, when did you finish? Mm -hmm. Oh, like 1.30, 1.45, something like oh. that. So he's going to bed after one in the morning. He's trying to wake up at six. He needs eight or nine hours of sleep a night. He's getting maybe five. He's sleep deprived. Sleep deprivation perfectly mimics ADHD of the independent right. variety. There is no mm -hmm. Connor scale. There's no questionnaire that can distinguish uh, whether this kid's not paying attention because he's sleep deprived or sleep deprived. Uh, not paying attention because he truly has ADHD. And yeah, the Adderall was incredibly effective. Why? <laughs> it's course. amphetamines. Adderall mm -hmm. and Vyvanse and the stimulant medications. Amphetamines, yeah, it's going to compensate for the sleep deprivation. But the appropriate remedy for sleep deprivation is sleep, not Schedule Two mm -hmm. amphetamines. Mm -hmm. Again, in, in, I can, t I wrote a, so I wrote a book with a French publisher. Uh, at their invitation called Pourquoi les garçons perdent pied, les filles se mettent en danger. Working with colleagues in France, I learned that in all of France, there are fewer than 6,000 kids on medication for ADHD. There are more kids on medication for ADHD in St. Louis, Missouri, than there are in all of France, a nation of 67 million people. Uh, and why is that? It's because in this country, Doctors go to medication as a first resort. Let's try Adderall and see if it helps. In France and in most of the rest of the world, outside of Canada and the United States, medication is the last mm -hmm. resort after mm -hmm. everything else has been explored. And you argue that that's the approach we should have here in the United States. You know, whether it's exercise, food, sleep, you have a lot of recommendations in your book to help parents in taking back their kids. You know, I think that a lot of parents are frustrated. They don't necessarily want their children on medication, but we are guilty as Americans of desiring a quick fix to many of our problems. We're very impatient in American culture. And your book is eye-opening to the crisis of, you know, what's the medical fallout long-term of giving these children? in these medications. You know, we haven't even talked about the, the negative impact on mood, for example, when you give a kid Adderall. Well, and, and also the negative effect on self-concept. Uh, if this kid is taught that, hey, you have a psychiatric disorder and your problems are due to a psychiatric disorder and the solution is a medication, you're really taking away from that kid the agency that they need to work through, that they need mm -hmm. to develop mm -hmm. self-control uh, instead of just thinking, well, the solution is to increase my dose of the amphetamines. Yes. Yeah. You call it the medicalization of misbehavior in your book. So what are the solutions and what does this have to do with changes that need to be made by parents? Yeah, specifically with regard to ADHD in my book, Boys Adrift, I provide very detailed guidance. I list the five criteria for diagnosing ADHD. I explain those five criteria. And I'll tell you, I had to fight with the publisher. They did not want to include that. And I remember speaking wow. to the publisher and they said, Dr. Sachs, are you seriously suggesting that a parent, after reading your one book, is qualified and competent to question the judgment of an experienced, board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist? 
And I said, absolutely. I said, not only that, they've got to question it because our country has gone off the rails. And in this country, more so than any other country, the only other country that comes close is Canada, doctors are using medication as a first resort. And the only person who can stand up for the kid is the kid's parent. And, and the parent has to challenge, has to question. So, and, and I include guidance. How do you do that? If you're not a medical doctor, how do mm -hmm. you question this mm -hmm. experienced child psychiatrist? Here's what you say. You say, doctor, are you aware of the 14 studies showing that these medications damage the motivational center of the brain? Oh, you're not? Well, uh, Dr. Sachs has given me permission to copy chapters four and eight from his book, along with the scholarly references. And I hope you'll take a look, doctor, because as you know, doctor, wise prescribing can occur only if you understand the risks of the medication. And there are many studies now showing that these medications damage the motivational center of the brain. This, these medications are one reason, not the whole story, but one reason why a growing proportion of boys are unmotivated and not working hard to achieve mm -hmm. their dreams because these medications damage that uh, motivational center of the brain. Mm. It's truth that parents need to be equipped with. And I think somewhere in your book, Why Are So Many Kids on Medication, you actually outline the connection where some of the major physicians who are being highlighted in top-level news media ended up coming out um, and be for being investigated for receiving massive financial benefits from pharmaceutical companies for yes. prescribing various medications. Well, that is another part of the story that I go to and uh, go into in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, the United States allows uh, drug companies to market medication direct to consumers. So if you're a parent, uh, it's very likely you're going to see ads for Adderall or Vyvanse popping up. Uh, you know, could be popping up on your Facebook page, could be popping, could your copy of Parents Magazine will come shrink-wrapped in an ad for Vyvanse. That is unlawful in every other country in the world with the exception of New Zealand. Uh, and the, as I explained in the book, the drug companies pay millions of dollars to thought leaders at, that's what they call them, thought leaders, at Harvard and Emory mm -hmm. and the National Institutes of Mental Health. Uh, I, I assure you, your local psychiatrist isn't getting squat, and I know this because I've spoken to them, and they're very angry at the way the leaders of the profession are, are accepting millions of dollars from the drug companies uh, to push the drug company line and not telling us, not telling us, and they're not doing anything unlawful. There's no law in the United States telling doctors they can't accept money from drug companies. They can, but their actions are unethical. Dr. Biederman at Harvard should have told us that he was accepting millions of dollars for the drug companies when he was pushing Adderall and Vyvanse and Risperdal mm -hmm. in this way. Amen. Your book is called The Collapse of Parenting. People can find you at leonardsachs.com. We posted links on social media as well to this, as well as in the podcast notes. I want to continue the conversation because this is really important that we're understanding some of these crises today within the context of medication and obesity, uh, come back to parenting, you know, taking back the reins when it comes to parenting. And a couple of the recommendations you make uh, include 
really um, take, having more of an authoritative position as a parent with your kids. We'll talk about that when we come back. We'll also discuss how you emphasize the importance of eating family dinners together without any technology. Coming up, we're going to discuss with Dr. Leonard Sachs, family physician, as well as a research psychologist holding a PhD in psychology. We'll talk about why American kids are so much heavier than they were a generation ago. Also, the pop world is going crazy talking about wanting to have kids and ranting about abortion, and people are walking out of concerts. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Tons of concert attendees walk out this weekend when a musician starts to go on a rant about being pro-abortion and how she had her abortion. She even notices people leaving. The fans notice people leaving. I'll share with you the news in just a minute, but I am actually riveted. Singer Billie Eilish is actually saying she would rather die than not have children. 20 years old in the pop world today, and she's saying what many women think but aren't saying out loud. And I hope she's inspiration in this one scenario for more people. We'll talk about that and more on the abortion front in just a moment. Joining me now is Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a family physician, as well as holding a PhD in psychology, especially focusing on the research behind what's happening, especially related to young people today. Dr. Leonard Sachs wrote an incredible book I highly recommend. It's called The Collapse of Parenting. We posted a link on social media. Follow me at Timmery, D-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, as well as it being in the podcast notes for today's show, along with other resources. And in this book, he starts by emphasizing kind of this crisis of what's happening with parenting and the shift in parenting. Dr. Sachs, if you could start by talking about this shift in parenting and then how this has impacted even things such as food and the struggle with weight today. So uh, researchers who study parenting for many decades now have used three terms that I uh, introduce in the book and then I kind of explain them, authoritative, authoritarian, uh, and permissive. And because those terms are kind of scholarly, I instead use the terms too hard, too soft, and just right. The too hard parent is spanking their kid, whacking their kids, screaming at their kid, seldom showing any love. We know that's not good parenting, and we know it because we have researchers who followed the children of those parents for 40 years. And kids who are raised that way are much more likely to grow up to be criminals, violent offenders themselves, and have great difficulty uh, achieving or sustaining romantic relationships uh, or engaging in loving relationships themselves. So too hard parenting, definitely not good. Too soft parenting. Permissive parenting also doesn't work. The parent who says, hey, I think good parenting means letting kids decide. Well, it doesn't, because if you let kids decide everything, you end up with kids who are many times more likely to be abusing drugs or alcohol as adults, many times more likely to be convicted of misdemeanor crimes, uh, and uh, uh, much more likely to be unhealthy. Uh, Best parenting is not too hard, not too soft, but just right. So a big focus of the book is what does that mean? 
And the researchers who've actually done this study say that over the last 40 years, American parenting has drifted. The, the average American parent 50 years ago was actually a just right parent. But today, the average American parent is too soft. The average American parent now is letting kids decide. And a very dramatic illustration of that is in food. So in 1971, 4% of American kids were obese. The latest numbers, 19.8%. Almost 20% of American wow. kids are obese. Not overweight, but obese. And uh, among teenagers, it's 22%. Almost one in four American teens are now obese. Uh, and there's no taper in that trend line. It's actually gotten a lot worse. We've gotten the, the latest studies since the began, pandemic began. And not surprisingly, when the pandemic, since the pandemic, the rates have actually, the slope of that curve has gotten more steep going up. Kids are getting obese faster. Uh, more kids are getting obese at a faster rate in the United States uh, since the pandemic began. And I think that ties into why kids are getting obese. Why are kids getting obese? There's three reasons. What kids eat, what they do, and how much they sleep. And the mm -hmm. pandemic really affected what kids do. But the changes have been going on for 50 years. And again, we don't have to guess, and this is not a matter of nostalgia. We have research. There were scientists back in the 60s and 70s who were looking at how American kids spend their time. In, in 1970, most American kids spend most of their free time outdoors. Yes. Uh, today, most American kids spend their free time looking at a screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and they used to be active. Now they're not. Uh, and of course, that only got worse as a result of the pandemic, but it was pretty bad uh, even in 2019. Uh, what kids eat, what kids eat, what kids do and how much they sleep. Those are the three reasons kids are fatter. Uh, we talked about what kids do. They're less active. What kids eat. So you know, I was speaking to parents in Chappaqua, New York, which is an affluent suburb of New York City, and I was talking about the importance of, of, parent, of parents making good decisions for their kids about what to eat. And a husband and wife told me how they made a healthy, nutritious supper for their son and daughter, and son and daughter came home and said, ooh, yuck, we don't want to eat that. We just order pizza. <laughs> so dad sat down at his computer, and the two kids dictate their order. He orders them each their own pizza wow. delivered by Domino's. And I said to dad, why'd you do that? Why don't you just tell them this is what's for supper? And dad said, well, I don't believe in using starvation as a means of punishment. I said, they're not going to starve. Look, 50 years ago, if mom made a healthy, nutritious supper for her kids and the kids said, ooh, yuck, I don't want to eat that, she would say, fine, you can go to bed hungry. She did not run out and buy them a pizza. If you let kids, if you let kids decide what's for supper, you know, there are some 12-year-olds who will choose broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, spinach, asparagus, and kale. But there are many 12-year-olds who will choose pizza, french fries, potato chips, and ice cream. Kids are not competent. Most kids are not competent to choose what's for supper. And when parents abandon that authority and let kids decide, you have kids getting, more kids getting fat. So what kids eat, what kids do, and how much they sleep. Lots of new research showing that sleep not getting enough sleep is a major risk factor for obesity. And I, you know, explore the research and share the, the evidence as to why that is so. But American kids are getting much less sleep than they were getting just 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, boys are staying up past midnight playing video games. Girls are staying up past midnight on TikTok and Instagram. And I say to parents, no video game consoles in the bedroom and no phones in the bedroom. No and American parents will, will be like, oh, I couldn't possibly take her phone away. She'd totally freak out. 
this is your job. It is not fair to put this burden on your 14 year old daughter, you know, to let her decide. It's, it's not fair. It's not fair to her. What is she supposed to say tomorrow in school when her friend says, Hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? Is this 14 year old girl supposed to say, well, researchers have found that having a phone in the bedroom and sleep deprivation is a major risk factor for overweight and obesity. I mean, it's ridiculous to expect a girl to talk that way. You have to allow her to say, Hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at nine and then we'll have it back the next morning at nine o'clock at night. You take the phone, you switch it off, you put it in the charger, which from now on is going to be in the parents' bedroom and the kid can have it back tomorrow morning. No phones in the bedroom, no video game consoles in the bedroom. Kids need a good night's sleep. That's a basic obligation of the parent to make sure kids getting good night's sleep and American parents are falling down. It's interesting because I think a lot of parents too will use movies and whatnot to fall asleep themselves, thinking that it helps. It's a whole other topic for another day. It's not actually helping them. It doesn't help children. Uh, but I was fascinated by a question you asked. You shared that in some of your research at one point, you ask kids a question about, you know, what what do you do? Like, what would be the thing you What's would want to do? What's your favorite thing to do? Yeah. So for the la- I've, I've visited now over 400 schools over the last 21 years, and when I meet with with the kids, I'll often ask them, uh, what's your favorite thing to do in your free time when you're by yourself and you have no obligations? Raise your hand if you'd like to share with your colleagues, what is your favorite thing to do in your free time? So I've been doing, I've been doing these workshops with the kids at the schools uh, across the country for over 20 years. And, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you'd get a fascinating range. This girl says she likes to try to play guitar in the style of Janis Joplin. Uh, this boy is trying to teach himself banjo. This boy is yeah. trying to learn, run a marathon. He's training for a marathon. Uh, this girl is shooting baskets. And they're all giving interesting answers. But in the last five years, the most common answer the, by far now, all, and this came out of nowhere. This wasn't even a thing mm-hmm. 10 years ago. But now the most common answer you get from American teens is sleep. Sleep. Their favorite thing to do in their free time is sleep. And that just breaks wow. my heart. It's social because, pressure. Well, it's, they're sleep going, deprived. And, yeah, they're sleep and, deprived, but they think they have to perform for parents, for siblings, for friends, for teachers. Well, and there's these energizers. Yeah, that may be true for it. some kids. Some kids, uh, uh, without a doubt, there's a few kids who are staying up late working on their homework and their term project. But I would say, based on my conversations with kids across the United States, that most of the kids who are sleep deprived are sleep deprived because the boys are playing video games and mm-hmm. the girls are on TikTok. Right. This, this whole balance. That's and just what I'm in doing. fact, I mean, this is staggering for people to realize, you know, people think that their kids are going to self-regulate their screen time. The latest studies and these only continue to go up and they've increased with COVID. Uh, but we've seen studies showing that average age, and you list this in your book, The Collapse of Parenting, a nine-year-old today spends 50 or more hours per week on a screen, a teenager spends 70 or more hours. Those numbers have only increased with COVID by quite a bit. And you know, you really think that they're going to self-regulate if they're spending this much time on a screen? And this is, and I know people don't like to hear it. We have Dr. Nicholas Carderis here, and you've talked about this as well. These screens are creating addictive behaviors for these kids and literally causing them to tick in different ways than they normally would. There was that trend uh, that was occurring a few months ago with the uh, Tourette's, the sudden onset of Tourette's that these kids were experiencing. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, and they were all mimicking one particular girl named Evie in England. Absolutely. If you Google my name and TikTok, you'll find I wrote an essay for the Institute for Family Studies where I linked to a lot of this research showing how uniquely toxic TikTok is. You know, because, uh, again, a generation ago, parents would say like, well, you know, I hear the TV is bad for kids. You know, we can argue about that. But TV is not customized to be addictive to the individual. You know, the Andy Griffith show was the same show, regardless of who was watching it. But TikTok has this fantastic algorithm that figures out what you want before you even know what you want. And it's feeding you what you want. And it's customized to you in a hyper-specific way. And so it's incredibly addictive to children and teenagers. And parents don't realize this is not like TV. This is a whole nother medium altogether. And it's much more toxic than TV ever could be because TV is not customized to the individual. The way TikTok absolutely is. Mm -hmm. In your book, you talk about the three things that are impacting uh, essentially the crisis of obesity and overweightness in our society. You say uh, what kids are eating, what people kids are doing, and how they're sleeping. Kids are eating terribly today. Uh, They're not spending enough time with activity due to screens, and they're not sleeping well also due to screens. But let's talk about how parenting can step into that and make a change in what's happening with this crisis of food, sleep, and activity. Yeah. So in each of those, parents need to step up and not do things the way your neighbors are doing them. Uh, with regard to what kids eat, you, the parent, need to decide what's for supper. Uh, and okay, you can give your kid a choice of uh, what what vegetables you'd like tonight, Brussels sprouts or lima beans. But you don't let the kid to decide, oh, I don't want to eat uh, fish. We're going to have pizza instead. That's not the kid's call that needs to be the parent's call. And, you know, I was at a school where the principal was trying to enforce a rule, no use of cell phones in the school. And a parent pushed back hard and said, I have to be able to text my daughter around noon and tell her what I'd like to serve for supper and make sure she's okay with it. And the the principal's like, are you kidding me? You need your 12-year-old's permission to make supper. But that's not unusual in this country. Parents asking their kids what the kids want, and then the parents prepare what the kids want. So what kids eat needs to be the parents' call. What kids do, you know, you need to limit how much time your kid is spending uh, with screens, you must limit, govern, and guide how much time your kid is spending on video games or with social media. And you need to be comfortable saying, hey, no screens, you're going to go outside and play. And I share, you know, a parent, a patient of mine uh, said to her kid, her son, hey, it's a beautiful day. Why don't you go outside? And the son said, apparently not joking, where would I plug in the Xbox? Uh, uh, <laughs> Because and and it is a challenge because you know a generation ago there was a culture of kids hanging out outdoors and yes. in any neighborhood you go outdoors there'd be kids to hang out with but now you drive around a neighborhood on a nice day and there's nobody outside mm-hmm. even though there's yes. kids in the neighborhood they're all inside looking at their screens so you the parent need to take the initiative. You need to find time to make time to do stuff with your kid, whether that's throwing a ball or going for a walk. Or my daughter and I love to do archery in our backyard. We've got a big backyard. We we can set up the archery, um, and 
Find other parents, find other families where you can do stuff together, outdoors, hiking, whatever. Uh, you got to find, because the culture isn't there anymore. The culture mm-hmm. of kids hanging out that I had as a kid growing up in Ohio, where there was always kids hanging out. You could always do a pickup game of football or baseball. Uh, you can't do that anymore because the kid, there's no kids out. It's and finally sleep. So yes. yeah, what kids eat, what kids do and how much they sleep. Again, sleep. It is the parent's job to make sure that lights are out, that there's no devices in the bedroom. This idea of falling asleep to a screen is so toxic. You know, T.S. Eliot had a wonderful line. In, he said, where can the word of God be heard? He said, not here. There's not enough silence. Mm-hmm. Silence mm-hmm. is where we hear the word of God. And that time at bedtime, when the lights are out and the room is dark and you're looking at the ceiling and you're silent, that's in a very practical way. That's when, for most of us, that's when we lead part of our spiritual life. And that's when mm-hmm. we ask God, what, what is your plan for me and, and, and what should I be doing? Falling asleep with a screen is so toxic, it literally eliminates that quiet time. Without quiet time, there cannot be spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. We're robbing children of their potential to know and love yes. God. You know, it's no wonder that these kids today we're seeing, you know, have no affiliation whatsoever to religion or rejecting religion. It's because we aren't preserving their their innocence through what they're exposed to on screens. We're not preserving their time. We're not preserving their sleep. We're not preserving their self-control. I highly recommend uh, the work of Dr. Leonard Sachs, my guest today. The Collapse of Parenting is his book that we've been talking about today. You can find him at leonardsachs.com. That's L-E-O-N-A-R-D. SAX.com. We posted links as well on my Twitter, as well as in the podcast notes for today's show. Please share this with a parent you know and love to help make some changes in our kids' lives in the next generation. I'll be back during our weekly marriage hour to talk about men rushing for vasectomies this week, singer Billie Eilish saying that she would rather die than not have children, and more. Stay with me. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Billie Eilish says she would rather die than not have children. That is the singer, another singer has upset a number of fans. In fact, Halsey has led many people to leave her concert in Arizona this weekend. We're going to talk about do animals receive better medical care when it comes to abortion than humans and much more? So stay with me. Okay, but first, have you heard of the news? This is just shocking and not surprising. The Washington Post is reporting that men are rushing, rushing to go through with having their vasectomies since Friday. Starting Monday, there's been a huge uptick in the number of men uh, seeking out vasectomies. The man, Doug Stein, a Florida urologist who's known as the so-called vasectomy king, would usually receive four to five requests a day for a vasectomy since the Supreme Court's decision of Roe v. Wade overturning a so-called right to 
abortion in the Constitution. There is no such thing, deems the court. He says that he's been receiving a spike of up to 12 to 18 requests per day. That's from four to five. That's a huge increase in the number of people, almost a five-time increase in some cases, uh, seeking out a vasectomy. Okay, why am I bringing this up? I want to talk more about vasectomies next week, but I do think this is an urgent conversation that I do want to touch on now because maybe you know someone who is living a lifestyle that abortion is conducive for the lifestyle they have been living uh, that is risky when it comes to the potential of fatherhood and actualized fatherhood and that they've been choosing abortion or allowing for women to choose abortion in those cases. We need to be prepared to have some uncomfortable conversations with people that we think might be at risk for making life-altering, life-changing, and in some respects, permanent decisions. Uh, Vasectomies can be reversible. It can also be extremely expensive. It's a very costly choice, your future children, but also if you try to reverse a procedure. But those aren't the only risks to vasectomies, and that's one thing that really upsets me. Just like the whole birth control debate, not enough has been said for years now about the impact of birth control on women. Well, not enough is said about the impact of vasectomies on men. Some of those include the increase in autoimmune disorders among men and also the decrease in pleasure and intimacy for men. Okay, what man really wants to decrease the amount of pleasure he experiences? Well, it's quite simple. I can break it down more and explain next week. Week, but I did do a podcast a while back on why men should not get vasectomies. We're posting a link now on social media. So I want to encourage you to check it out, kind of equip yourself with some of those talking points. But we're going to talk about it more in depth next week because it is an important topic. We talk a lot about the medical fallout of contraception, but not enough about vasectomies. And we need to be prepared to talk to people who are going to make life-altering decisions that will impact their future. More on that next week. Okay, singer Billie Eilish said she would rather die than not have children. She's 20 years old. She's achieved quite a bit over the last few years in her singing career. And I was fascinated because about a year or two ago, she did an interview with Vanity Fair saying that, saying, I want to have kids and I want those kids to have kids. She was saying she wants to have lots of children and she wants to have lots of grandchildren. She wants to have a family and be surrounded by a family. It was breathtaking to hear this young woman in Hollywood saying this. Well, she recently opened up again, this time speaking to the Sunday Times about her hopes of starting a family. She even said she'd rather die than not have children of her own and talked about raising family. A family is one of her goals. She's got her goals in mind and she's oriented that way. She has commented that she is nervous, like any parent, about parenting choices, the world, disagreements with children, the days to come. Uh, But again, she still wants to have kids. I do think it's interesting because some people are deterred from desiring to have children or talking about having children because of those fears. I think many women in particular today are told they should not talk about any maternal desire for a child because for some reason that makes you less competitive, less desirable, or whatever the world likes to say. But the reality is, is that from a young age, Girls choose baby dolls to love and nurture and care for. But for some reason, at a certain point, 
in that development of a young girl, even in good families, the desire for children's being stymied or the voice, the ability to voice that desire for being children is silenced. And I think that we need to return to a culture where it's okay and it's a good thing to say you want to have a child. In fact, I especially think within the dating scene, this is so important for men and women. In fact, I remember when I was single before I started dating my now husband and we were carpooling to school one day and I mentioned to him, I don't know how it came up, you know, he's asking what I want to do with my life and you know, I was saying, you know, I planned on being involved in pro-life work and that at the end of the day, I really wanted to be a mom and I wanted to raise my children and I wanted to be present all the time to my children, focusing more on children than on having a career. It was very important to have kids, raise your own kids. And I remember he said, wow, that's incredible. It's really interesting. And he goes, tell me more. And I found it such an interesting response because it wasn't something he had heard a woman in our peer group say, and it was something that didn't seem normal for women to say in our age group, interestingly enough. And so I think that when Billie Eilish, a singer, is out there saying at 20 years old she wants to have kids and she's not afraid of criticism or critique, I think that's pretty awesome. And some people might argue, well, she's lived a very accomplished life and maybe she feels comfortable just saying what she wants and she doesn't feel like she'll miss out if she doesn't, if she has children and slows down her work. But I also would argue she could have the perspective if she so chose that, well, if I have children, this will get in the way of me having a life. But she doesn't have that mindset. She doesn't make comments like this, which is also interesting in the light of the recent news. Did you hear this? At a concert in Arizona this weekend, fans were marching out of the Hasley Halsey concert after she went on a long pro-abortion rant. I think more than five minutes long. I was watching it. People were walking out in droves, so much so she was noticing people leaving. Fans noticed other people leaving. It was noticeable that this singer's pro-abortion stance was upsetting people. It started with her sharing that she had an abortion. She says to save her life, the argument that many people are saying it wasn't to medically save her life, but allowed her to continue to live her life and do what she wanted. She then shared that she struggled with infertility for years, sharing about difficulty with endometriosis and so forth and how excited she was to finally have a child. So making the argument essentially that if I didn't have abortion, I wouldn't have the life I have today and I wouldn't have been able to have children on my own terms but also ignoring the fact that an abortion can impact fertility, especially when there are underlying health causes such as endometriosis that impact fertility negatively. And what's interesting is this woman, as she's sitting here sharing publicly about her abortion and all these details, my heart breaks for her because no one has told her the truth about abortion, the aftermath, the impact on Things such as endometriosis, when you have an abortion. She argued that motherhood and parenthood is not something that you can force someone into. But you also shouldn't be able to force someone to be murdered. And just because babies are innocent and vulnerable doesn't mean we should be able to kill them. But people definitely heard the tune she was singing and marched out. Especially when she started chanting 
with the pro-abortion advocates in her concert, My Body, My Choice, over and over again. I think this is when many fans had it and outright walked out of her concert in Arizona. Singer Hasley, this is a reminder to you, people come for your music not for your political views. And I think this was good news to see that pro-life fans were willing to stand up and walk out when things just went too far. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. I received a fascinating email from a listener named Nancy. She's a veterinarian, and she said she wanted to spread the word about the way that abortion is used and the way animals are treated for abortion. Now, this already creeps me out. I don't even like the idea of abortion for animals either. That's a whole other topic for another day. But again, I think it's wrong. But what's interesting is she shares that even with RU46, a medication, um, medical chemical abortion that women use, well, these are often used for animals and dogs in particular. We're actually going to talk about RU46 abortion tomorrow because this is the future of abortion. It's what's being pushed and expanded for. We know over 54% of abortions today are chemical abortions. We actually believe more than 60% are today. But what she said is that when abortion is used for dogs, for various reasons, that the medical standard of care for a, da- for a dog is to undergo a hospitalization for that chemical abortion, to be observed carefully through the process. She mentions the agony, the vomiting, the bleeding uh, as the baby dog, um, feed eye, as she refers to it, is e- expelled. And she talks about how medical care is continued afterward and how there's an ultrasound after the abortion to check the dog to see if there are any parts of the baby dog left in the dog to make sure that everything came out because there's risk of an infection. Everything she just detailed None of that occurs for a woman. A woman is given a series of pills and told to go home. And if anything, she's told flesh don't look when she passes her baby. It is absolutely ridiculous that, and she said this, that animals are receiving superior medical care to human patients, to women today to young girls. That's how horrible abortion is. The so-called right to abortion has been pushed so intensely, so intensely, that we don't uphold even basic medical standards that animals receive, yet alone us. Okay, really quick, because I keep receiving this question. Is abortion acceptable in the cases of ectopic or tubal pregnancy to save the life of the mother? If you know anything about ectopic and tubal pregnancy, these are on the rise. Pelvic inflammatory disease is a very common side effect of abortion, by the way, and a leading side effect of pelvic inflammatory disease is ectopic and tubal pregnancy. It's some of the causes of this rise we're seeing in ectopic tubal pregnancy. By the way, so that's a risk of abortion, a future risk. But ectopic and tubal pregnancies, the fallopian tube will burst with the baby. The baby will die and the mom will die as well. And so the treatment of care, there are a couple options for women who have ectopic or tubal pregnancies. It's a very horrible, horrible situation. I was in a worst case scenario. They thought with my baby girl that I had an ectopic tubal pregnancy. Praise God. She made her way through the fallopian tube and implanted where she needed to in the uterus. But this is a worst case scenario for many people. Now, there are a few options. You could, one, use methotrexate, which is an abortion to kill the baby, Two, you could remove the fallopian tube with the baby intact and the baby 
will naturally die as a result of being removed from the mom so early. And unfortunately, as of yet, we can't medically intervene to save that baby. Or three, the removal, or there can be a slice made in the fallopian tube and the baby can be extracted. But let's be clear here. It is morally acceptable to extract the baby without intentionally going in and killing the baby while it is not morally acceptable to take a drug such as methotrexate to kill the baby. Why place that burden of murder on the life of the mother or the physician when the simple answer is to respect life and protect it in all cases? This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. What is the future of abortion? Roe v. Wade has been overturned. No constitutional right to abortion. We have work to do. You need to know what's happening in our crisis pregnancy centers and how you can get involved to help women on the ground. Also, the expansion of abortion through chemical abortion. What you need to know, this is shocking. Also, we need to help women heal from abortions to stop future repeat abortions. Join me Friday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.